Hello, and welcome to the Poisons and Pestilence podcast, episode 11, Great Balls of Fire. We are bounding our way, like a bovine IED, into season two of our trundle through the history of biological and chemical weapons and warfare. In this season, we will focus on the period roughly from the mid-15th century all the way up to 1700. Now, if you pick up any history of chemical and biological warfare and look at what they have to say about the 15th and 16th centuries, you will likely see reference to the same type of claims that we have been dealing with since at least the 5th century. This extends the use of poison in assassination, the use of water warfare to break sieges, the catapulting of various nasties, and continued references to poison arrows, as well as the use of toxic smokes. And believe me when I say, we will continue to be looking at these things. But oh my, there is so, so much more to come. In this series, we have several major threads to bring together, as we trace the thin sliver of history that is poison and disease warfare. The first is gunpowder which spreads west after its development in China via Middle Eastern traders and pirates in the South China Sea, before returning home with a vengeance centuries later in the form of European cannon and handguns. The second is a colonisation of the Americas by the Europeans. The world grew vaster in human terms and also shrank in ecological terms. And the era set in motion social and ecological transformations so profound that we still struggle to make sense of them. The Atlantic Bridge brought destruction and war, and disease was an ever-present factor, and with new contact came new poisons and new atrocities. All the while, humans sought ways to control, rationalise, and mythologize a chaotic and increasingly transitory world. They turned to intellectual and technological selves, which we still hold in high regard today. And as we see, these profound shifts are reflected in how and why wars are fought as well as the moral character of them. This terrain is vast, so how lucky we are that we can follow just one central thread through this era, as we map the false starts and meanderings which characterise the history of chemical and biological warfare. In this episode, and at least the next one, we'll be focusing on gunpowder. Important for two key reasons. Early developers exploited its toxic potentials, and later inventors would anticipate a new class of toxic projectile, which included, but went far beyond, gunpowder-launched poison arrows. As noted in earlier episodes, there is a European bias in this chronology. As gunpowder weapons came to prominence in Europe in the 15th centuries, we are only just dealing with gunpowder now. But as we will see, to understand this emergence, we have to trace the heritage of these weapons back deep into Chinese military history. In this episode, I work along the main trunk of gunpowder-based innovation from around the 9th century, which emerged in the East. And in the next episode, we will trace the spread of gunpowder west via the traders of the Levant to Europe, where they were adopted and adapted. This will take us then, essentially from field-improvised use of smoking black powder mixes, which were essentially extensions of much earlier uses of toxic smoking warfare, to some of the much more sophisticated, and to be frank, often bonkers weapon systems, which are said to have incorporated either poison smokes or poison projectiles. As ever, we are very lucky to follow in the wake of some excellent historians, 
who have managed to reconstruct the frenetic and intricate history of gunpowder. The lovingly crafted tome produced by Joseph Needham and his team in the 1980s deserves special mention, as this work is the primary basis for this show. As ever, you can find links to this material in the show notes. And with that, all that is left for me to say is that I hope you enjoy today's show. So, our story today centres on the emergence of gunpowder in the region of the world which roughly correlates with what is today modern China. Our journey begins in the 9th century. This was a time characterised by territorial struggles over a vast region of the Asian continent, much of which occurred largely in isolation from civilizations of Western Eurasia and the Middle East. The peoples of this region grappled with the same types of political and environmental challenges as the other expanding societies around the world. This led to the development of a range of extraordinary social and technological innovations, which would parallel and often outstrip their Western counterparts. In this area of history, a number of regional hegemons would emerge. This included, for example, the Song Dynasty, which unified much of eastern and central China by the 12th century. The Song Dynasty is today remembered for its significant cultural and technological contributions to world history, from its development of the civil service to the invention of movable type. The Song, as well as its regional competitors, faced constant threat from Mongol invaders, who really did seem to get everywhere in this era. In the 13th century, the Mongol leaders finally succeeded in bringing the entirety of the region under their control. This lasted for around a century, before they were usurped by the Ming Dynasty, which existed for another couple of hundred years until the late 17th century. By the time we leave this period, it is estimated that the Ming Dynasty's rule extended to well over 160 million souls, or somewhere around one-fifth of the global population at the time. I think it is fair to say that this history remains underappreciated in Western society today. While there was much upheaval in this era, what is clear is that certain organisational and cultural traditions enabled impressive technical and technological innovation throughout this entire 800-year era and luckily for us, also provided enough continuity to leave behind substantial written accounts from the era. A case in point of particular relevance to us is gunpowder. In 9th century China, various communities of people were messing about with chemicals. Now back then, there wasn't a clear distinction between pharmacology, alchemists, mystics, and the type of guy that lived in your town with his mum until his 30s and got a little too interested in exothermic chemistry. But either way, what was struck upon was that the combination of sulphur, saltpetre, charcoal and other additives in certain proportions generated a rather innocuous looking black powder. Now from the outset, these mixtures were exploited for touted medical properties. Indeed, gunpowder tinctures, which I assume are a little less prone to ignition, are still marketed as traditional Chinese medicine for various ailments today. Of course, in a medical context, The ability of these powders to ignite and kill those producing it, proscribing it or using it has always, we assume, been seen as a rather unfortunate occupational hazard or side effect of the medicine. However, a number of bright sparks, perhaps having witnessed the manufacture of this fire drug go awry, would explore alternative roles for these mixes in the manufacture of fireworks and incendiaries. By the 11th century, Various incendiary and smoking mixtures for use in warfare had been committed to parchment. 
The majority of these early recipes appear to have been developed to burn in open air, but over time, through tinkering, chemists hit upon recipes which included a higher proportion of chemicals which allowed the mix to burn in more confined airless chambers. These mixes then were more suitable for launching projectiles. This involved experiments with shells and small handheld fire tubes. The 11th century is where things get really interesting for us, because it appears that poison variants of each of these weapons were at least conceived of by weaponeers at the time. There are dazzling claims of Chinese poison smoke and poison arrow weapon systems, and other insane weapon systems involving animal-delivered explosives. But did these weapon systems ever actually exist? And to what extent were they ever actually employed? In order to address these questions, it is worth talking about the evidence base for the weapon systems and how I'm going to deal with this in the rest of the show. A key issue is that the expansive histories written on this topic in English are reliant primarily on a quite sketchy, but albeit beautifully illustrated, corpus of documents, which include military histories and manuals. Now, as with all archaic documents, dating is often challenging. Furthermore, we are often dealing with transcriptions of old documents in compendiums produced in later centuries. And while I think it is reasonable to trust the materials and the expert academic commentaries when trying to spot broader trends in weapons and warfare, they were never designed to be the last word on the character and prevalence of poison warfare in practice. We should be careful then not to over-infer from them or their primary sources. We will face the same issues in the next episode, by the way, where we deal with some of the fevered scribblings of 17th century artillerists who appear to describe hypothetical weapon systems which probably never existed outside of their perpetually concussed and nitrate adult heads. It is also worth remembering that many of the systems described in this episode were built largely from materials which readily disintegrate over time, particularly in the earlier era. This, of course, is a problem for archaeologists of this period more generally. For example, the last complete English longbow arrows, which dominated European battlefields in the 14th century, had long rotted away by the beginning of the 18th century, leaving only drawings and arrow tips dug up from battlefields. For 200 years or so, historians believed that human hands would never again be able to touch a complete English arrow. And this was true, until the chance discovery of hundreds of neatly boxed and immaculately preserved arrows in the wreck of the Mary Rose, which was raised in the early 1980s. Such miracles are the exception rather than the rule, however, but who knows which of these weapon systems may yet come back from the historical abyss. In this episode, then, I have attempted to sketch out the predominant claims about chemical and biological weapons in this era, with the same level of cynicism, scepticism and bewilderment which has characterised our journey so far. It is clear, however, that the review presented here today is only the tip of the iceberg, inasmuch as there will be further archaeological work out there in any number of languages, which might shed light on questions about the use of such weapons in reality. Long before the emergence of gunpowder, Chinese militaries, much like the Romans of the same era, may have at various points used both incendiaries and smoke in warfare. There are claims of the use of smoke to quell uprisings in the pitched battle, which supposedly took place in the 2nd century. Likewise, there is written reference to the use of toxic smokes and smoke screens generated by pumps and furnaces for siege warfare, 
which occur from the 4th century onwards. Interestingly, there is also a parallel here with the Roman mine war techniques we discussed in episode 4. Reference is made, for example, to the burning of mustard and other dried vegetable material containing irritant, volatile oils. As a historian of gunpowder in China notes, after the 4th century, the records of these practices are less sparse, and these strangely modern, if reprehensible, techniques were elaborated ad infinitum. The earliest recorded recipes for what the West came to know as gunpowder can be traced back to the work of alchemists from as early as the 7th century, if not earlier. Now these recipes were developed and written down by alchemists who merged chemical engineering and mysticism. As you might expect then, we're in for a bit of a wild ride when it comes to discussion of both the ingredients and the alleged powers of these compounds. There are many proto-gunpowder recipes stretching back centuries, which appear to have found applications in medicine and warfare. Practitioners from the era include cautions in their written records about the explosive potentials of substances, including a substance which doesn't translate neatly into modern English, but is variously referred to as fire drug, fire medicine, fire chemical, or fiery McFireface. I made the last one up. These early concoctions are identified as precursors to gunpowder as they involve a number of key known reactants in black powder involving saltpetre, sulphur, as well as carbon-rich substances such as charcoal. From about the 9th century onward, there appears to have been further refinement of gunpowder recipes for military applications, such as making smoke, fire and noise, as well as powders that were more likely to generate explosions. Recent recreations of these recipes have also confirmed that these different mixes did indeed burn differently, and would have each had suitability for a specific pyrotechnic function. In the beautifully illustrated military compendium from the 11th century, a number of recipes are provided. One example is for a bomb to be launched via trebuchet, which was essentially a ball of gunpowder tightly wrapped in paper and tied up with hemp, and then covered in wax and resin. In this case, the ingredient list for the black powder core includes saltpetre, which can be roughly extracted from rotting animal and human excrement, and has long been used as fertiliser. That constituted about half the mix. In addition, there was sulphur, which could be found in China in a natural form, and was later also extracted from sulphur-containing compounds such as pyrite, which is referred today in the West as fool's gold. These constituted another quarter of the mix. And finally was pine resin, which constituted about one-fifth of the mix, and which, and I am a non-chemist here, I assume would have been a source of carbon. These core ingredients are the engine of the exothermic reaction. Once ignited, the sulphur and carbon act as fuels, while the saltpetre is an oxidizer. Then we get some cheeky adjuncts, which include arsenic and lead-containing compounds, which would have meant for a very nasty smoke indeed, unlikely to be lethal in open spaces in the volumes we're talking about, but certainly something you wouldn't want to be breathing in. Once wrapped up, this mix was then ignited using a red-hot poker, and launch, we assume, pretty sharpish. A variant of this mixture also appears in a second weapon, which is modified to include iron hooks, which would have made the weapon more likely to stick to defenders' walls. So, some nasty stuff there, and some even nastier stuff in another recipe in the same compendium, this time for a trebuchet-launched poison smoke ball which was apparently modified to produce a profusion of toxic smoke as it burned. 
Now, we know that both incendiaries and smoking mixtures have a long history and have been independently developed and used around the world for a long time. However, this is a weapon which seems to have been designed specifically to emphasise the poisoning, rather than just the suffocating and harassing effects of the smoke. These poison smoke balls were similar to the trebuchet launch bombs just described, only they incorporated some spicy additions. Specifically, aconite, that arrow poison we met back in episode 1, as well as croton oil, extracted from the seeds of a tree found across the east. Croton oil is so irritating and painful when applied to the skin that it is used to study pain in lab animals, and has such violent effects on the lower intestines that the US Navy would add the stuff to neutral grain spirit used to power torpedoes to deter oh-so-industrious and oh-so-thirsty sailors from drinking it. And, I'm sure you won't be surprised to hear, it is today used within our booming cosmetic industry, in face peels. Because of course it is. From the 9th century onwards then, gunpowder recipes continued to be refined, with the emergence of high nitrate mixes designed to make such powders more violently explosive, something which would eventually give rise to muskets and larger cannons which came to dominate the 17th century European warfare. However, in the meantime, the Chinese developed a whole range of weapon systems now largely forgotten in the West. What is interesting is that as you work through these various esoteric classes of weapon, in each case there is reference to poisonous subvariants. Now, there is simply too much to cover in a single episode, so what I've decided to do is to look at just two of the most important weapon types, which emerged between the 10th and 13th century during the Song era the fire lances and the eruptors. The fire lance or fire spear was essentially a tube strapped to the end of a long pole, which was packed with various gunpowder concoctions. Variants of these produced smoke and flame, and others were designed to blast out small stones and other projectiles. When projectile material was incorporated into the device, it was generally speaking only roughly packed in on top of the charge, this meant that the range of the projectiles were quite limited and you could only really aim in the general direction of what you were firing at. However, later variants would also incorporate rockets as well as more tightly fitting projectiles such as arrows. There appears to have been significant experimentation with the propellant and the type of projectiles included as well as the configuration of the tube and pole, with later firelance barrels sometimes being made out of metal rather than bamboo. There were also batteries of these weapons, which were at least conceived of by Eastern military minds. Historians seem to agree that this broad class of weapon was certainly employed in China, appearing in around the 10th century, and produced its scale in the centuries which followed. It also appears that this technology spread across the Middle East, reaching as far as Britain. There is reference to the use of fire lances in the English Civil War as late as 1643, at an incident at Bristol and similar devices appear to have been employed at sea by various European navies up until at least the 17th century. In China, there is even photographic evidence of their use up until at least the 1930s, as part of naval warfare. There is also even a report of old, we don't know how old, what we think were finances being stumbled upon in a disused Chinese arsenal in the 1930s, these were seemingly inadvertently detonated and a pair of missionaries were requested to treat the wounds. Now, as we will see, there is a long history of false claims about poison bullets, 
in part because gunpowder mixes are to some degree toxic and so can cause chemical burns, and second because projectiles often introduce additional foreign materials into wounds which can lead to infection. In this particular case, it has been suggested by one historian, perhaps overstretching, that those treated were suffering from the additional effect of mercury compounds added to the gunpowder mix. It is also apparent that the Chinese conceived of, and perhaps even developed and employed, versions of this weapon designed to poison enemies. First, there is some suggestion in the historical record that poison arrows were sometimes flung from these boom-boom tubes. Now, we know that the Chinese were certainly no strangers to poison arrows in both hunting and warfare, back through prehistory. In Europe, we saw how poison arrow use tended to decline among increasingly urban civilizations. Similar processes were afoot in the Chinese region in this era, and poison arrows appear to have attracted at least as much fascination as they did for the Romans and ancient Greeks. But interestingly, it might also be the case that gunpowder gave poison arrows a second wind in warfare. Poison arrows are incorporated into various type of weapon system design which appear in military compendiums and histories between the 9th and 16th centuries. For example, in a number of compendiums there is reference to what can only be described as an arrow blunderbuss, which has habitually been translated to fire crossbow meteoric arrow shooter, which apparently could fire 10 poison arrows which came out of it like a flock of locusts. It is unclear if the addition of poison here is a poetic flourish, and the fact that we also see passing reference to bear and tiger poison dipped arrows and spear tips in relation to both smaller and larger mortar type weapons does not really help us work out if poison arrows were ever really used in this way. Another type of fire lance described in military manuals from the early 15th century had a name which has been translated into typically fantastical English. Sky-soaring, poison dragon, magically efficient, fire lance. This weapon was essentially a polearm with a nasty-looking crescent-shaped blade at the end of it. In addition, it had three pyrotechnic tubes fixed just shy of the spear tip. The weapon, as described, is a multifunction weapon. One tube, made out of iron or bronze, is packed with gunpowder and a lead ball, which can be fired at range. As the enemy draws closer, the other two tubes can be ignited to produce a poisonous smoke. And finally, assuming the user isn't a gasping wretch on the floor, the blade can be used to defend any brave soul who has continued their attack. There are also examples of more monofunctional fire lances which utilise poison, most notably the sky-filling smoke-spurting tube, which might have generated an arsenic smoke for around five minutes, as well as the orifices penetrating flying sand magic mist tube, not making that up, again described in military manuals as far back as the 14th century, from which spurts out flame, sand, poisons, ammonia compounds and many other chemicals. The next class of weapons we look at are the eruptors. These were essentially larger versions of the fire lances and were more akin in scale to what we would today describe as mortars or cannons. Eruptors emerged in China at some point in the 13th century if not before and would have been deployed alongside more long-standing technologies such as trebuchets and catapults. Early eruptors described in the military manuals were made of bronze and were around four and a half foot long, or just over a metre, and used as much as ten pounds, or one average house cat, of gunpowder. What is most surprising is that many of these early designs seem to have in mind rapid repeat fire, which is something more akin to a crude repeater gun than the field artillery of the late Middle Ages. 
In some cases, the repetition appears to have been achieved by placing a lump of slow-burning powder in the device, lighting it, then pouring in a handful of lead balls. The pressure would build up and discharge the balls, and then another handful of balls could be added. This live burn reloading could be achieved without almost certain death, as this type of eruptor had a reloading tube on the side. With a tilt of the weapon, balls would roll down the tube and into the barrel, and begin the pressure building process once more. In other cases, a Roman candle type strategy appears to have been employed, with multiple charges and projectiles added to the same tube, with the first ignited, which would fire and light the next charge below. An example of a poison version of the eruptor, which was called the Poison Fog Magic Smoke Eruptor, is described again in a 14th century firearms manual. This was a mounted weapon designed to be fired at defenders of a city wall. It fired a shell which apparently contained a mix of gunpowders, which generated toxic smoke, bright flashes, and could also ignite fires. Another example was the heaven-rumbling thunderclap fierce fire eruptor, again a poison smoke shell weapon. This design called for wolf dung, known to produce a very heavy smoke, ammonia and arsenical salts, soap bean powder, pepper and our old friend croton oil. Another variant, named the nine-arrow heart-piercing magic poison thunderous fire eruptor, was a larger version of the tiger poison-tipped arrow-firing fire lance described a few minutes ago. And there is so much other madness to behold in these manuals, from animal delivered incendiaries and explosives to all manner of explosive delivery vehicles. But a word of caution to end on, of course. In the same manuals are a range of weapons which appear beyond fanciful, and there is certainly then a need to examine the archaeological record which goes far beyond what I've attempted in this show. For example, one would-be inventor working at this time appears to have been in a creative mood and conceived of a three-rocket tear agent-like device with three charges. The first charge would function as a rocket, the second charge would deliver a harassing powder such as quicklime, and then, because why not, the third charge would blast the rocket back in the direction from where it came. We then, perhaps, once again need to return to the point that many weapons described in these ancient sources should certainly be treated with caution. There is then little doubt that we will be returning to this era in future episodes. There is a fundamental link between gunpowder and the history of chemical warfare. We will see how in later centuries would-be inventors would investigate the use of comparable toxic materials and would face significant problems in upscaling the use of toxic agents in order to elicit the desired debilitating or lethal effects. This includes the arsenical-based chemical weapon agents which we developed during and after the First World War. It is interesting to consider the extent to which experiments with arsenic in China in the Middle Ages would anticipate work done half a millennia later by Western military scientists during and in the aftermath of the First World War. Looking forward, we will be moving out of China in the next episode as we follow the spread of gunpowder weapons. However, it is clear that we'll be visiting this region again soon, where we will deal with 19th century accusations of chemical warfare, as well as pirates on the high seas, who seem to have been all too eager to keep the Chinese tradition of smoke weapons alive and well into the 20th century. And that's it for this episode. I hope to see you next time as we continue our antisocial history of biological and chemical weapons and warfare on the Poisons and Pestilence podcast.